0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Yes, indeed, he is. And a good afternoon to you. Welcome. 23rd day of February, and what a remarkable day. Weather rise around the San Francisco Bay Area. Working here at the Home HQ, and almost difficult not to be outdoors today and even better weather down in Texas. Talk to Dr. Robert Jeffress. This morning I did. He's going to be on the program coming up later on in this week. And uh, Dr. Jeffress told me that Dallas had 70 degrees temperature. So it looks like the big thaw is coming following the big chill. That's certainly good news. All right. Well, we're off to the races on this Tuesday edition of Lifeline. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to talk about the legal phenomena that allowed somebody like Rush Limbaugh to do what he did to become what he became. Our focus today will be on the history of the fairness doctrine and calls to regulate the Internet. We know certainly that even President Trump wanted to abolish Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, but is that necessarily a good idea when it comes to protecting Freedom of speech. Well, our resident constitutional expert Bob Zadek, host of the Bob Zadek Show, will join us a little bit later on in this hour for what I'm sure will be a spirited and insightful discussion. We'll get to that coming up a little bit later on. Right now though speaking of a spirited and insightful discussions, the uh the seesaw of Title Ten is back yet. Once again, now, if you're not familiar with it, Title X funding has essentially barred using those public health dollars for abortions in every Republican administration since richard Nixon and to be sure, whenever there's talk of putting a ban in place, organizations like Planned Parenthood that receives forty percent of Title X funding gets all in a lather. And then, of course, whenever there's a change in administration from Republican to Democrat, they look forward to having the money reinstalled. Well, recently, the U.S. Supreme Court, I'm sorry, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, weighed in on this topic, and they actually agreed and said, yeah, no, based on what Congress wrote, Title X funding cannot go to perform abortions. That's not part of family planning. Well, as this continues to be debated, the U.S. Supreme Court has now agreed to hear arguments over the legality of the Protect Life Rule that was instituted under the Trump administration, barring Title X funding for Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers. Let's get more as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. And Brad, as I mentioned, this has been a ping pong that uh, has been batted back and forth between one administration and another since 1970 something when Title 10 was first passed by Congress. And yet here we are once again, the debate. Undoubtedly, the Biden administration will attempt to reinstitute access to those dollars to the delight of Planned Parenthood and yet there are questions raised, most notably that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals would actually uphold the ban on the use of Title X funding for abortion during the Trump administration. Good news. Can we gain any better news out of the idea that this is going to be revisited now by the U.S. Supreme Court?
2: Um, yes, I, I do believe that uh, this Supreme Court, Craig, will... Um, Uh, Uphold President Trump's uh, interpretation of of Title X and refusal to uh, give money to any entity uh, that is further that does and performs abortion. Uh, A narrow interpretation of it was was one that uh, applied to not directly funding abortion. President Trump expanded more principally, saying, "Wait a minute, if we're funding." All the activities and survival of Planned Parenthood were also funding their number one source of money making by keeping them going, which is abortion. And, uh, it's pretty logical, uh, if you, if you think about it. So I think that, um, that that's going to be upheld by the Supreme Court. Uh, it's, it's going to be a split decision. You'll have Sotomayor. I, I they her the God hater. Um, she'll, you know, undoubtedly, you know, vote, um, you know against that uh, the, that interpretation, but I think the, the other I think a majority of the court will affirm uh, what President Trump has done and, and as they should
1: now, if you take it simply at face value i I think that any honest person could conclude that Congress was very clear from the start when Title X was first crafted, voted upon, and then signed into law by then President Nixon that title ten funds. Cannot be used to support abortion, and of course there 's always this notion that we somehow uh, twist the definition of family planning quote unquote to include abortion when I think most reasonable people would say yeah that's a that 's a bit of a stretch. Should we be surprised at all that Planned Parenthood who seeks to uh, reinstate the funding and of course there are direct beneficiaries as I mentioned, more than forty percent of Title X funding goes directly to Planned Parenthood, but any surprise that they would team up with of all organizations, the American Medical Association, in challenging the Ninth Circuit Court's decision?
2: Yeah, and the AMA is, is actually very liberal, and they're we're, they're talking about you know them getting money too. Um, they want money and for their institutions, and uh, and that would be fact, because they they perform abortions in hospitals and other uh, medical establishments as well. Um, clearly abortion is not, quote, a family planning um, measure. And that's, that was the, the, the context where we would like, have funding uh, uh, provided. Um, you know, 65% of independents, nearly one-third of Democrats, oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. And, um, and, you know, the main arguments they like to give is they say, well, this discriminates because uh, low-income minorities... Uh, you know, they can't afford abortions. Well, the other the flip side of the coin is, no, this discriminates because this empowers Planned Parenthood uh, to continue to target black communities in particular and Latino communities so that more of their unborn babies are killed than in white communities and Asian communities. Um, it's actually actually very, very alarming. And you know, I, I would contend to be challenged as race-based discrimination because to the extent to which is effectively targeted and resulted in the death of so many more minority babies um, because of this, this government spending. So I think uh, I think the Supreme Court's going to see right through it, and I think they're going to pull the uh, HHS's um, uh, rules applying uh, funding to not go to institutions that, that conduct abortions. And I think it's very much uh, in line with uh, proper interpretation of the law and the Constitution.
1: Could a decision by the Supreme Court once and for all give a sense of finality to all of this? Because as I mentioned, things like Title X funding, the so-called Mexico City policy, this is always batted back and forth between Republican and Democrat administrations. Republicans get elected first couple of days in office. The president, whoever he is, uh, signs an executive order banning it. And then when there's a change in administration from Republican to Democrat, first few weeks in office, the new president signs a executive order reversing that ban. So this has been going back and forth for, my goodness, uh, the better part of 51 years now. Is there any sense of potential finality in this once the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision? Uh,
2: yes, uh, there is a good chance we could have that kind of decision from the Supreme Court. Uh, where they give a, a clear uh, definition of the law and, and a proper rule as, uh, applied to the law. Uh, I, this Supreme Court is one that uh, has shown that they are, they don't believe that uh, bureaucrats have just a, a blank check to uh, adopt whatever rules they want to enforce the law. This majority of this court is one that looks on looks at the law, how, how does it, what's its intent, what's its purpose, and is much more willing to scrutinize uh, rules to see whether they're compliance with the original intent of the law and I think that 's a good thing uh, for title ten it 's a good thing for the mothers and the children um, throughout throughout america
1: and how soon will we anticipate the court hearing this case
2: uh, <laughs> that's a good question sometimes they um, they hold off uh, i it'll be um, i expect it'll be probably in the next uh three to four months uh, There. are Decision will be likely coming down on it. Um, This is a controversial uh, case, so it's likely to come down at the very end of their term. So we're looking at maybe like in June. Uh, Usually they they hold off on the controversial ones on the last day uh, when they're already out of town. Uh, So I think that's what it'll be in this case as well.
1: Hand down the decision and then catch the next plane. I got it. (laughs) Well, we appreciate the update, and I know certainly, Brad, you'll keep us opposed or apprised of what uh, develops here once it does, in fact, uh, go before the court. There's Brad Dacus. He is the president and founder of the Pacific Justice Institute with an update on the decision by the Supreme Court to take a look at the issue, the debate, of Title X funding and the most recent Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision upholding a stay, it's five sixteen.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: All right, welcome back to the conversation. Twenty minutes after the hour of five p.m. here on your uh, thawing. <laughs> Tuesday, thawing meaning the weather's getting warmer. Nice day today out in many parts of the Bay Area. And so uh, here we are, and we're going to engage in a conversation that uh, might not only help to uh, thaw the cool weather we've been experiencing, but maybe even heat things up a little bit <laughs> in a good way. We, um, we last night, or last week rather, memorialized the passing of late talk show host Rush Limbaugh who is regarded as uh, many as not only a trailblazer, to be sure, in the arena of conservative talk, but in many respects, and I I think uh, arguably so, uh, helped to almost single-handedly save AM radio. Not that all of it needed saving, but AM radio was on the, the rails, so to speak, on life support in many regards, and Rush Limbaugh's entry into the medium nationally in 1988, um, made a significant difference. And if you ask anybody that programmed one of the 600 stations that carried his program up until his passing, I think they would heartily agree. Oddly enough, it was only the year before that a change in the law made a program like Rush Limbaugh's, quite frankly, like the one you're listening to right now, even possible as the then-administration of Ronald Reagan handed down an edict for the Federal Communications Commission to repeal something that had been a holdover since the 1930s, called in shorthand discussion the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine essentially said you have to make space on a radio station or a TV station for all opposing views, and in some cases even offer them equal time, equal access, and if they're unable to pay on their own, well, um, that equal opportunity at no cost. With it, it was a very delicate dance that radio and television stations across the country had to do from the inception of the FCC in the early 1930s all the way up until... 1987 with the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, largely because it meant that anytime somebody heard something on your station that they thought was uh, inappropriate or um, the opposite of the viewpoint or opinion that they had, they had the opportunity under the law to hop on your radio station and view the opposite or opposing position. Now, can you imagine running a Christian radio station like this one And having to give every sort and nature of religious viewpoint equal opportunity and equal access, I mean, it would become uh, such an impossible, insurmountable task that many, many broadcasters, as they did at the time, just said, "That's it. We're not going to touch any of this. We'll we'll stay down the center lane where it's safe, where our license is protected." and where we don't have to run into these significant decisions and debates on a day-by-day basis. Well, the elimination of the Fairness Doctrine in 1987 changed all that and opened a significant gateway for the rise of talk radio and differing ideas and, quite frankly, platforms that allowed conservative voices for the first time to express, express themselves to do so safely. Well... As always, and we've heard for a long time now, some discussions about maybe it's time to revisit something like the Fairness Doctrine. And if we do, shouldn't we have a Fairness Doctrine for the Internet? Well, let's get some insights now as we're joined by syndicated talk show host. In fact, he's the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, Bob Zadek. Bob hosts the Bob Zadek Show, broadcast live here in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. And Bob, as always, a delight and a privilege to have you join us.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're a great host, Drake. I always enjoy this is a show.
1: This is a this is a great topic for the two of us to to unpack since <laughs> much of what we do uh really uh, turns on or relies upon uh the free exchange of ideas and I and I can't imagine um from the perspective of what I do each day or what you do on your nationally syndicated program um having to live up to basically a standard set by somebody else and living day by day moment by moment as every thought and idea is expressed under the fear of having to essentially either uh, somehow have uh, have our our venue or the place in which we share those ideas either be shuttered or be told, it's okay if you express that idea, but you have to give equal access to the opposing opinion. And, you know, there's certainly lots of room in the give and take of discussions here in in American life, and we've kind of prided ourselves on the ability to, uh, to agree to disagree. But the notion of the impact of the fairness doctrine having a chilling effect, sadly just the opposite of what it intended to do on First Amendment rights, is one that I think there's uh, spending some time discussing discussing today. It's a
0: very interesting topic, and it requires us to show our age because you and I will will talk fondly about our time actually listening to AM radio as as young uh, young adults preteen. I sure remember sitting by the radio, listening to Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York, read the Sunday funnies on the radio as the mayor of New York. So I remember radio as an entertainment medium as a young as a young boy, pre-teen. Now the fairness doctrine is quite interesting, and uh, it forces those who are curious to sort of. It occurs to many people to wonder, and if they haven't, I'm going to invite your listeners right now to wonder why it is that radio as a medium, as a way to convey information and entertainment to the public, why radio is regulated by the federal government, but newspapers are not regulated. Did you ever wonder why you have to have a license to operate a radio station, but you don't need a license to print a newspaper or a magazine? Now, if I were to ask anybody who can hear us why they think that is, there would be silence because it's indefensible. It It should not make a difference. However, the reason is because in the early days of the 20th century, the legislature either didn't understand basic laws of physics or didn't care. And the theory was when radio was invented by Marconi and others at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, and therefore it was new, it was believed, although it's totally incorrect, that there was a finite amount, a finite amount of bands on which broadcasters could broadcast. And you could broadcast at 560 AM and at 580 AM and at 610 AM is not a time, it's the AM versus FM bands. And since there was a finite, they believed incorrectly, amount of bands of radio, then the government had better allocate and distribute and control who got what band because there wasn't enough to go around while perhaps there is a finite number of bands just like there is a finite number of grains of sand on earth but it doesn't matter there's plenty of sand to go around even though it is finite Well, there's plenty of bands to go around, if they are finite, but nevertheless, so when radio was invented, the government took it upon itself to say, okay, we can't just let anybody grab a band if they want, and therefore, we are going to, by federal law, say, if you're going to broadcast in the United States, you have to get permission from us and we will assign you one of the limited number of bands. That's the history of broadcast licensing based upon a mistaken understanding of basic laws of electrodynamics and physics. That Now, so we have the the, the Federal Radio Act in 1927, I believe, which said you can get a license, but in exchange for us permitting you permitting you, how I hate that word, permitting you to broadcast on a certain band, it's not free. You have to make a promise to us that your broadcasting, your programming, will be, will satisfy the public interest, necessity, convenience, and public interest. And public interest. Which means now the government says... In exchange for you being permitted to broadcast, we will decide what the content will be. Uh-oh. Imagine if a newspaper couldn't print unless they printed everything that satisfied the public interest as determined by government. Welcome, welcome to totalitarianism. Okay, that's where it all started. Well, then in the in the late 1930s, the government uh, decided that public convenience, necessity, and public interest dictated that there be uh, fairness, that no one abuse the, the monopoly they are given to broadcast on a certain band. And so the fairness doctrine was... Invented uh, to make sure that the public was exposed to all points of view. Now it's not an accident because what happened, Craig, is that radio was very successful. It was mostly owned by by some, it was at first owned by large broadcast companies, NBC, ABC, and the like. They were big companies, very strong and very powerful. Well, then along comes television. And television becomes, in the 50s and in the 40s, starting in the 40s, becomes it starts to overcome radio as the most popular electronic medium. And AM radio becomes less important, and television becomes more important, and all of the big radio companies now became big television companies and they sold off their stations because it was uninteresting and small entrepreneurs bought the radio stations and they got the leftovers for the entertainment attention now how do these small radio stations get listeners Well, the public was getting their news from television and television was bland. It had to broadcast in the public interest. It was bland. It was all the same. It was all very mainstream, very Republican, very Protestant, very American. And kind of boring to many people. Well, so now you operate a radio station. How do you make any money? Well, you've got to get people's attention. So they started to promote. And they started to have conservative talk radio broadcasting. Why? Because the public could get all of the mainstream, bland, somewhat left-of-center news they wanted from television. What was left over? Well, conservative right-wing media was not broadcast on television so that was a fertile market for radio and radio discovered discovered right-wing talk radio as a way to capture attention away from television and it worked that was the petri dish in which Rush Limbaugh and many other mostly conservative talk radio hosts became popular now why conservative because the left was given all of these outlets on television the right had no outlets because there was no right wing television it was all mainstream It was all walter cronkite mainstream so what was left over was the right and they thrived in radio and, and the, it first started to make its presence felt in the kennedy administration Kennedy was disliked by the right. Kennedy, believe it or not, Kennedy was seen to be very progressive. And Kennedy's views towards Russia, Kennedy's views towards Europe were an anathema to the radio right. And they complained and complained and complained about Kennedy, and they got a lot of attention. And Kennedy needed to find a way to get rid of this growing influence of right-wing talk radio, radio. No one ever to the radio except for people on the right. And what Kennedy did was he instructed his administration to enforce this policy laying around, but unenforced, called the Fairness Doctrine. And he used the Fairness Doctrine to impose uh, burdens upon all of these mom-and-pop-owned stations who were carrying the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. And that's how the government used the Fairness Doctrine to suppress right-wing talk radio by using federal law. Now,
1: And I have to special- tell you, being around in radio at that time, uh, in uh, certainly pre-deregulation um, uh, of 1987, it was a very fine balancing act that we had to engage in, in order to, as you mentioned previously, Bob, um, serve in the public interest, convenience, and necessity. We had those that moniker uh, drummed into our heads as young broadcasters, and in doing so, um, ever always carefully towing the line to make sure that we never crossed over, because to do so would not only trigger fairness doctrine responsibilities could even potentially put the radio station's license at risk it was exactly. it was a time of of extreme caution a uh, bridled commentary and and kind of uh, indirectly and by default the federal government putting a, um, a wet blanket shall we call it uh, having a a very um, deleterious impact on First Amendment rights and freedom of speech. We're going to get back to more of our conversation and go deeper on this topic. Bob Zadek is with us today, host of The Bob Zadek Show. His program is heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. We'll take a brief time out, come back and talk more about kind of the uh, the opening of the gate in 1988, and the potential threat that looms even today, as our discussion with Bob Zadek continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Thank you. We are back as we continue our discussion. Bob Zadig is with us today, the host of The Bob Zadig Show. You can catch his program here in the San Francisco Bay Area each Sunday morning at 8 a.m., By the way, I'll mention he's got lots of great resources on his website. You'll find copies of his books there. You'll also find links to podcasts and other information pertaining to topics and guests heard on the program. Check out the website at BobZadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. We're talking about the Fairness Doctrine, talk radio, the fertile ground that has been allowed since the repeal of the Fairness Doctrine, under the Reagan administration by the FCC in 1987, and how that it really opened the door for the opportunity of a fair and even exchange of ideas without the fear or threat of uh, big brothers, so to speak, uh, coming down upon you and essentially having a chilling effect on First Amendment rights. And it allowed the opportunity for people like Rush Limbaugh and others a platform to be able to express thoughts and ideas. Well, all that said, of course, as we've enjoyed this fertile ground for lo these 30-something years, uh, the notion of this being a precious freedom that could be at risk of losing it at any moment is always lurking in the background, and certainly we've seen more discussion pertaining to this Bob, since um, many people have decided, you know, we need to regulate what goes on in the Internet and we can't allow platforms. Some say you can't allow a platform like Facebook or Twitter to just put anybody on there and they need to have certain controls. And then again, you begin to wonder if you start to stifle freedom of expression and free speech on the Internet, it would seem to me that there's just simply then no limits.
0: Your exact well, of course, there are no limits. And Craig, there's such, there are so many interesting parallels that we can draw between what we've experienced in our country in the past and what we may experience in the very near future. Two parallels I'd like to uh, draw your attention to. Number one, uh, for many, when radio was in its heyday. It was licensed, which means every single thing that happened on radio was controlled by government and w- without any free speech issues um, being um, questioned. Without it, There was just no question. And in effect, the ra- radio as a medium did not, occupy, ocu- did not operate under any freedom granted by the First Amendment. Now, it didn't because the First Amendment only regulates what government can do. The First Amendment says government cannot prohibit, I'm I'm paraphrasing, uh, free speech. However, what government did with its radio license, it didn't regulate free speech. It said to a radio station, You better operate in the public interest, which means the government interest. Of course, whenever we hear the phrase public interest, we have to ask ourselves, well, which specific element of the public? Well, the answer is who's ever in power in the government. So the government now, through the license, gets to control what is said on radio and who gets to say it because if the radio stations disobeyed, they lost their license. So there was government using radio to prohibit the speech that government could not prohibit directly. It was sinister and it, gosh darn it, it worked. Now, flash forward to today. Tomorrow, there will be hearings in the House of Representatives uh, where uh, the, the Heads of the major cable networks, Comcast and the like and Cox and all the others, will be have been dragged before Congress to explain why they think they should continue to allow Fox News to be carried on a cable network, on a cable uh, station. In other words, the Congress is saying, we think that Fox News and AON and the other conservative stations, we think that those networks spread misinformation. We think that misinformation is bad for democracy. Therefore, it may be in the public interest to get rid of stations that have crossed the line with their dissemination of misinformation. And if you don't believe me, I invite our listeners to watch tomorrow's hearings. And there will be a frontal attack on Fox News. And who knows, Craig, whether Salem Broadcasting is not right behind them. So, therefore, we have the government, just like they did in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, using their licensing power... And their control over large media companies and cable and cable providers, using that power to stifle the free speech that they cannot stifle directly as government. It is scary stuff. And if I can draw one more parallel, I, as you know, Craig, in my day job, um, I am I represent lenders. I deal in the world of finance. And I have witnessed firsthand what I consider to be almost the nationalization of banking in America. Banks right now are so regulated that they have to carry out governmental policy or else the government will make their life so miserable they can't survive. So in effect, banks behave very much, not like private business, but like instruments of government and it has been successful if you're the government I fear I fear the same is going to happen to social media and to networks in general that governments which already license those activities and they they can close up Facebook and Twitter et al through federal law section 230 etc that we are going to see tomorrow the start of the government's indirect takeover of media, which means takeover of speech in America. That's the scary part, and that's why the topic you've asked me to speak about is so timely. It's 12 hours before these hearings will start. So don't follow what I'm saying. Watch the hearings and decide for yourself.
1: You know, what's problematic, of course, about this this very fact that this discussion will be taking place uh, as it has in the past. And we've seen times when um, uh, Jack Dempsey and Mark Zuckerberg have been called to Washington, D.C. to testify. There's always the idea that, well, somehow they ought to be responsible for what is posted on their website. Then, of course, when they step in and do that, there's concerns about overreaching. And I think what's problematic about all this, Bob, is, number one, the notion of trying to police it all to the satisfaction of it all what I think essentially leave the Internet, as it would and did radio in the 1980s and earlier, as as sort of a place where it was safe to watch cat pictures and kids' birthday party videos, and that was about it. The free exchange of ideas was simply truncated. And, you know, certainly there can be much-spirited debate as to, in our pluralistic society, uh, what defines so-called community standards, who gets to set those standards, the one nice thing with any of these platforms is that you, if you don't like it, you can always not look at it. You can vote with your feet. Any of us have the opportunity, and you touched on this earlier, of essentially, if we don't like what we see, uh, it, <laughs> go out and build a better mousetrap. Meaning, if you think that um, Twitter or Facebook is uh, discriminatory in one fashion or another uh, towards or against conservatives or liberals... Well, go out and start a competitor, a, a, a competitor, and 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 I, I think this idea of trying to repeal Section Two Thirty and and somehow create uh, this innocuous place where instead of places like Facebook, Twitter at all being a safe harbor where they can publish information without having. Um, direct responsibility, in other words, right now under Section 230, they have immunity from civil liabilities for any information that they uh, simply put out there as posted by somebody else. If that changes and now the platforms are being called in to police, what's obscene, what's violent, what's otherwise objectionable, then it really comes down to, well, who's making that judgment call in the moment? and And suddenly now, any... Conversation that heretofore had been constitutionally protected is now all of a sudden what? Deemed to be inappropriate, and therefore we're going to create, again, sort of this, this innocuous, bland space where there's really no value of exchange of ideas whatsoever because we're all fearful of saying something that may put us at the receiving end of a lawsuit?
0: That's exactly right, and what we have is the government will stifle free speech Not directly, because the First Amendment says they cannot, but indirectly through proxies. And the proxies will be media in general and social media in particular. And, Craig, there's one other thought that we could devote a whole other show to. And it's an intriguing thought that I have not heard discussed very much. There is so much worry out there about misinformation and russia hacking in and trying to influence our elections Um, here's uh, a contrary thought craig just to tickle your brain and to give you something to think about the fear is that what is spewed out on facebook et al on social media is wrong And it will unfairly influence the election. Now, here's my question to you, Craig: How many people do you know who are either who were conservatives and because of something they heard on social media they changed how they voted? The answer. Let me answer the question for you, Craig: Zero. Same as me. Same as everybody. So that if if it's almost absurd to imagine somebody changing their political orientation based upon something they read on Facebook. If that's the fear, it's silly. It's the boogeyman. It's like being afraid of a goblin. Nobody is influenced by what appears on media. It's salacious. It cries for attention, but it doesn't change anybody's mind. And if it doesn't change anybody's mind, it cannot be a threat to democracy. So this is all fake. It's like making up a fake uh, uh, a threat that doesn't exist and then legislating away a threat that is not a threat to begin with. Nobody is influenced by media. It gets their attention, and maybe they laugh, or maybe they talk about it. It doesn't change how they vote. You've never met anybody who changed their vote based upon something they read on Facebook. It doesn't happen.
1: Do you see this as a potential slippery slope, if indeed re-regulation or tighter regulation, of Internet providers, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, et all? now suddenly are coming under the watchful eye of some government agency, and now they're having to police everything. I mean, I, I, I would wonder, you know, the old adage, uh, a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump, meaning if they are able to institute a regulation of this sort and essentially abolish the Section 230 that protects or provides immunity for corporations that provide platforms. They're not seen as publishers, but rather just platforms. Somebody else's thoughts and ideas get posted there that suddenly we see regulation coming there that it's not long before somebody stands up and says, well, wait a minute now. If we're going to do it there, you know, all these federally licensed radio and TV stations, that they ought to be held accountable too. Could this be a dangerous, slippery slope in your opinion?
0: Yes, with one, and the only... Saving grace, the only thought that gives me some degree of hope, is the Harry Reid effect. Harry Reid, um, the former uh, head of the Senate, the majority leader in the Senate, he took liberties with the uh, filibuster rules, and he allowed for... uh, uh, nominations for high federal posts by the president to be approved by a majority and not by a supermajority of 60 votes he did that to force his will upon um, the minority now that came back to haunt him and it gave donald trump the ability to profoundly influence the judiciary which means legislators have to always remember The power they give to themselves is going to come back to haunt them, but they're not going to be in control forever. And I think they learned from what Harry Reid mistakenly did. And I think that the parties who really want to survive will probably not take the step that you have described Because they will know there will be a time, maybe as soon as two years from now, that they will not be in power anymore. And the last thing they want is to build a power to the majority and then turn it over to the Republicans if they take control. I think that point of view, based upon survival, is going to save us from the extremes of government. But, of course, I could be wrong. I hope I'm not.
1: Well, and I hope you're not as well, because uh, the the notion of the proverbial shoe on the other foot and tit-for-tat uh, can be a very dangerous game to play, and in the end, it's not necessarily one party or another or... Um, one viewpoint or another that loses its the all, the entirety of the American people. Bob Zadek, again, host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the country, The Bob Zadek Show, appropriately titled, heard Sunday mornings here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 8 a.m., and you can catch his program on 860 a.m., The Answer. I'll mention, as I did before, lots of great resources, past broadcasts, you get information about guests. Also, you can order Bob's books online Check out his website. It's BobZadek.com. B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot Our thanks to Bob Zadek for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Much more to come. An hour, in fact. So let's get you an update on traffic and back with more as Lifeline continues.